Good morning, everyone. It's our joy this morning to come to the Lord's table together and to partake of the bread and of the cup, which are vivid pictures of our Lord's work on the cross and dying for our sins. Christ said to do this in remembrance of him, and that is the joy and the privilege we have as a church this morning. And as we do that, let's open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. This morning we're going to be looking into the Word of God as and examining what the scriptures have to say for us and for our lives. And this morning I want to be reading from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 to 10. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 to 10. Paul writes this, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. If you've been with us in our study, you know that we've been studying the great doxology of Paul in verses 3 to 14. The great doxology of Paul in which Paul expresses his praise in his adoration to God. And the theme of this doxology is the riches of God's grace, the greatness of salvation God has given to us in Christ. And we have looked at so far in our study of this text three great blessings that God has given to us in Christ. The first blessing was in verse 4, the blessing of election. He has chosen us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Paul traces our salvation back into eternity past and he shows that we have been chosen by God before the foundation of the world, that God has sovereignly selected us for salvation, and therefore we are the elect of God. The second great blessing we saw is in verse 5. God has predestined us for adoption as sons. The blessing of adoption, that God has taken us, though we were once children of wrath, and he has welcomed us into his spiritual family. And then the third great blessing we saw was in verse 7, and that was the blessing of redemption. In him, Paul says, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. All of these blessings Paul is showing us are the expression of God's grace in our lives. They are the expression of the salvation we have received in Christ. They are the result or the effect of Jesus' work on the cross, his death in our place for our sins. And so Paul's heart is filled with a heart of praise. His heart is filled with a heart of adoration to Christ because of the great things that God has done for us in our salvation. I want you to say to you this morning as we, I shepherd you through this text that this doxology is really tonic for the soul. This is medicine for a weary heart. This is a joy-filled um, exaltation, a song that we ought to have our hearts uh, grasp and to embrace. I understand the, what the psalmist said in Psalm 42, 5, where he said, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And again in verse 11, he said, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Brothers and sisters, this is the experience of every Christian in our spiritual walks that there are times of dryness, there are seasons of discouragement, 
There's season in which we have trouble hoping in God, putting our trust in God. Our, our hearts and our souls are downcast. And this morning, I would ask you this question, dear Christian. How is your soul? How goes it with your soul? How is the state of your heart this morning? Are you walking in a state of, of joy and praise to God? And maybe you're saying, Dan, well, you don't understand my circumstances. My circumstances are just so negative. They're just so discouraging. It just seems like there are troubles in my life and there seems no, uh, no resolution in sight. You don't understand. I have reason not to praise God. I have reason not to be filled with a heart of praise. And brothers and sisters, I would say to you this morning that if anyone could say that, it would have been the Apostle Paul. Paul is writing from prison. Paul is here in a dark circumstance. He is facing possible death. He has preachers who, are, who are rival, have rival spirit who are seeking to attack him. He was in negative circumstances. There seemed no resolution in sight. He was awaiting trial and possible sentencing. And in the midst of all that, he says, you know, I'm not discouraged. My soul is not cast down. My soul is not weary. No, I am filled with praise. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I would just say to you this morning as we look at this text that negative circumstances are not a reason or an excuse for a sour heart. They just really aren't. The circumstances that you and I go through in life are not an excuse to, be, uh, to have a complaining or a grumbling spirit. No, Paul shows us in this text that when our hearts are focused and fixed on the right things of God, when our hearts are are fixed on the grace of God and salvation, that, that grace is a medicine for our heart. And even in the midst of the most difficult circumstances, in the most difficult trials, we too can be filled with a heart of praise. You know, from time to time, I've had the opportunity, the privilege of leading uh, the saints in songs of praise here at this church. And that has been one of the greatest privileges of my Christian life, just to be able to, to, to stand with a guitar and to lead the saints in worship. But as I've prepared for that ministry, I've asked myself throughout the week, Dan, is worship something you're doing on a Sunday morning, or is worship a way of life on an everyday basis? What you do on Sunday morning, is it, is it the overflow of a heart that is worshiping God day to day, Monday to Saturday, just in the everyday situations of life, is your heart being filled with a heart of praise? And I love what one praise leader said about worship. He said, worship doesn't happen when a guy gets on a stage with a guitar. But it happens when faith-filled eyes behold the glory of Christ. I love that. When faith-filled eyes behold the glory of Christ, our hearts are filled with praise and adoration. And Paul is showing us in this text that even in prison, even as trials assault him in his life, that his eyes were focused on the glory of Christ. And so he could say, it was well with his soul. Oh, brothers and sisters, is it well with your soul this morning? Is it well with your soul? Have circumstances and situations got you down? Or are you, are you with faith-filled eyes, beholding the glory of Christ and finding even in the midst of the darkest dungeon of your life that Christ is a source of praise and adoration? It is my prayer in my heart that as we've been studying this doxology, that the song of Paul's lips would be the song that enters into your heart and mine. Because everything, brothers and sisters, everything flows from a life of worship. Everything in our Christian lives flows from a life of worship. You cannot serve without a, without a heart of worship. You cannot serve your, your family without a heart of worship. You can't fellowship without a heart of worship. Everything flows from a heart 
of worship. And so I ask you again, is it well with your soul? Is it well with your soul? How is your soul this morning, Christian? Are you marinating in these great truths that I have been chosen before the foundation of the world? I have been adopted as God's beloved child. I have been redeemed, set free from my slavery. I have reason to praise God no matter what else is going on in my life. I have been forgiven of all my trespasses because of the blood that Jesus shed on the cross for me. And whatever God's situation that God has placed me in, I will bless the God and Father of my Lord Jesus Christ. Well, as we've looked at the three great blessings that are found in this text this morning, we want to turn to a fourth great blessing Paul affords for us in this passage, and that is the blessing of wisdom. That is the blessing of God's wisdom. In verse 8, Paul says that God has lavished his grace upon us. He has literally caused it to overflow in our lives. And then he says this one phrase, in all wisdom and insight. In all wisdom and and insight. In other words, the expression of God's grace overflowing in our lives is specifically in the gift of wisdom. The way that God has shown his unmerited favor to us in Christ is by giving us the precious gift of wisdom. The gift of wisdom is another reason to praise our God. Now before we go any further, let me just emphasize to your hearts what a precious gift that wisdom is that wisdom is more precious than any earthly possession. Really, it is more precious than anything else that we could have in this life is the gift of wisdom. Uh, Proverbs 3, verse 13 says, Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than gain from silver and her profit better than gold. Have you ever considered that? You know, if you have the choice of a million dollars and the gift of wisdom, take wisdom. Take wisdom. Its profit is better than silver or gold. Proverbs 8 verse 10 says, Take my instruction instead of silver, and knowledge rather than choice gold. Wisdom is a priceless possession. Verse 11 says, For wisdom is better than jewels, and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence. I find knowledge and discretion. My fruit is better than gold. And my yield is better than choice silver. You know, finding wisdom is a great treasure. Finding wisdom is the greatest treasure. You remember the story of Solomon in the Old Testament. We teach it to our children. And we teach them that the story of how God said to Solomon, ask one thing and I will give it to you. Guaranteed, no strings attached. Just ask one thing of me and I will give you that thing. And I put myself in that story and I think, man, if God gave me that offer, I have a bunch of things that I would ask for. I have a long list of things that I'm sure that I can say, Lord, I just want you to give me this. But you know what Solomon asked for when God said, I'll give you one thing? He said, Lord, give me wisdom. Give me wisdom. Wisdom is better than all the gold in this world. He said in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 9, Give your servant an understanding mind. Give your servant an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. When Solomon was asked the one thing he desired, he said, the one thing, Lord, I desire is wisdom. And isn't that true of all of our lives? You know, the one thing that you need right now in your life is wisdom. The one thing that you need to deal with the circumstances and the trials that you're facing this week is wisdom. The one thing you need more than anything else is the wisdom of God to deal with that situation in your life. 
And Solomon knew that. He knew that, you know what, if, if I have wisdom, then everything else is going to follow from there. And it was true. God gave him wisdom. And what happened? The, the kingdom of Israel prospered as never before because they were under the wise rule of a king. 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 34 says, All the people of all the nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. Listen, wisdom is a precious, priceless gift of God. Wisdom is better than any earthly possession. And I love how the Proverbs just emphasizes that one of my favorite passages in the Bible is Proverbs chapter 2, verse 1. And it says this, this is the, a father speaking to his son. It's intimate. He's saying, my son, my son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, if you make your ear attentive to wisdom, if you incline your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and you will find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. The Lord gives wisdom. And from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. You know, that is just the exhortation that comes from the scriptures. To seek for wisdom more than precious jewels. To seek for understanding more than all the riches in this world. And God says that if we seek for wisdom, that wisdom will be granted to us in abundance. If you read the Old Testament scriptures, you know that the, the gift of wisdom was so emphasized in the Old Testament that God gave five specific books just to teach God's people wisdom. Those books are called the wisdom literature in the Old Testament. They're the books of Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. And those books are found in the very heart of the Bible. The very middle of the Bible are found the books of wisdom. And those books teach us wisdom as it relates to everyday life. Wisdom as it relates to suffering. Wisdom as it relates to living a life of purpose. Uh, wisdom as it relates to worship and to dealing with the practical areas of life. And for those of us who are married, wisdom as it relates to marriage. If you're, if you're married, read the Song of Solomon. It is given to teach you wisdom and how to relate to your spouse. All those books were given to teach God's people the wisdom of God. But as we look at the unfolding revelation of God, as found throughout all the scriptures, we see that the Old Testament revelation of God's wisdom was not the fullest and the most complete revelation of his wisdom. When we get to the New Testament scriptures, we find that the New Testament gives the fullest and the most complete revelation of the wisdom of God, and that revelation is the revelation of Christ, is the revelation of who Jesus is and what he has done to die on the cross for our sins. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21 says, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, Christ the power of God, and then get this, Christ the wisdom of God. Christ, the wisdom of God, the fullest revelation of the wisdom of God is found in the New Testament scriptures. And that wisdom is centered on the person and work of Jesus Christ, Christ and him crucified. In fact, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 2, Paul says it simply that in Christ are hidden all 
the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So when Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, that, that God has given to us the gift of all wisdom and insight, he's referring to the New Testament revelation of Jesus Christ, the work of Jesus on the cross on our behalf. And he's saying that this is the fullest revelation of the wisdom of God. And we have been given the precious gift of being given this wisdom. You know, brothers and sisters, as we look at this truth, I, I emphasize again that this is to be tonic for our souls. These are, this is to be medicine for our hearts. This is, this is to be a truth that, that the Holy Spirit would bring to our hearts in such a way that we would stand amazed at what God has done. These are, this is the remedy for a sour heart or cynical spirit or discouraged or spirit. Behold, Paul would say, and look at what God has done. Behold, Paul would say, and see what God has given to us. And when you see what God has given to us and you get the bigger picture, that truth will be a medicine for your heart, and you can give God praise no matter what you're facing this day. As we look at this gift, let me emphasize two basic truths as it relates to the gift of wisdom. First of all, I want to emphasize to you this morning that we have been given a tremendous privilege. And then secondly, I want to emphasize to you this morning that we have been given a tremendous, a really breathtaking perspective. So first, the privilege, and second, the perspective. First, privilege. The privilege that we have been given as children of God. Verse 8, God has expressed his grace in all wisdom and insight, and he has made known to us the mystery of his will. The mystery of his will. I believe that when Paul is using that term mystery, he is emphasizing to us the privilege of the Christian the privilege of the Christian, the privilege that we have to understand certain truths about Jesus Christ. You know that term mystery, it's really a technical term. It's not the idea that something's kind of spooky or, or kind of odd, but it's really the, the technical idea that there were truths that were not known in Old Testament times that have been now revealed in the New Testament era. That is really the idea behind the word mystery. Whenever the New Testament uses the word mystery, it is saying that there were truths that were unknown in Old Testament times, and they have now been revealed to us, the church. We have been given the privilege of God's revelation. We have been given the privilege of understanding truths about Jesus that were not known by the Old Testament saints. Now stop for a moment and just think about that. For a second. Think about all the Old Testament saints that lived throughout the scriptures. Think of men like Abraham and Moses and David and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Elijah, the great saints of old. Think of all those who've lived in the Old Testament period. And what Paul is saying with this term mystery is that you and I, as those who live in the New Testament era, are given a privilege that even those men were not given. They were not given the same privilege that we have today because they were not given the full revelation of Jesus Christ. They understood certain things about Christ. They could look into the future. They could read certain scriptures. They could see Christ revealed in somewhat of a shadowy form. 
but they were not given the full details of the birth of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the discipleship of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, the public ministry of Jesus, the preaching of Jesus, the sufferings of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus, those truths were not known in Old Testament times. Men like Moses and Elijah and Isaiah did not understand those truths as we do. And what Paul is saying with this word mystery is that you and I have been given a tremendous privilege. We have been given privilege beyond measure to be able to open the New Testament scriptures and to have the New Testament revelation of Christ and to have Christ and his person and his work and his life and his death and his ascension all revealed to us in glorious detail, this is a privilege that was unknown to the Old Testament saints. And yet it has been given to us, the church. What a privilege. What a privilege. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10 emphasizes this privilege. It says that the Old Testament prophets searched and inquired carefully They inquired what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicated when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Saying there that the Old Testament prophets sought to understand who Jesus is. They sought to understand what the Messiah would do when he came, but they couldn't because it had not yet been revealed to them. They couldn't understand it because it was still concealed. And yet for us, for us, It has now been revealed. The mysteries of Christ have been given to us. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 1 says, This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. And 1 Timothy 3, verse 16 says, Great indeed is the mystery of godliness, the truths that were once concealed and that are now revealed. And what, Paul, is the mystery of godliness? It is Christ. It is Christ. It is the person of Christ. Paul says that he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. All the truths about Jesus Christ revealed in the New Testament era are the mystery that has now been given to us. And we have the privilege of understanding the mysteries of Christ. Brothers and sisters, my my prayer, my heart, my exhortation, even my rebuke this morning, that we would never lose the sense of privilege. Have you this morning as a Christian lost the sense of privilege? Just the privilege of opening a Bible and reading about Jesus just the privilege that we have been given as Christians to know the scriptures, to open the word of God. I was on my way to to church this morning and I was just thinking, what a privilege. What a privilege. The privilege isn't so much to to teach or to preach. The, The privilege is to open my Bible and just to read about Christ and what he has done. What a privilege. And I fear that many of us in the church have lost that sense of privilege. We have lost the sense of awe and wonder that God would give to us this revelation. Why would he give to us and not to the saints in Old Testament times? Why would he give to us this privilege? It is grace upon grace. 
You know, in my marriage, I know the first day that I was married, I was overwhelmed by a sense of privilege. Just, just that my wife would marry her and commit herself to me, and on the day of my wedding, I was just overwhelmed with privilege. But you married couples know that as you go through marriage and through the years, you, you kind of lose that sense of privilege. You start taking your wife for, for granted, and you start taking your husband for granted, and, and you, you, don't, you don't just stand in awe that, that why did God give me this, this precious gift? In the same ways, when we come to the scriptures, we lose the sense of privilege. We become jaded. We, we, are, we are surrounded by an embarrassment of riches when it comes to biblical teaching. And we, we take it for granted that we have the privilege that others have not. You know, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, to his disciples, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Oh, Peter and John and James You know things that Old Testament saints did not. You know things that that have not been revealed to you. It has been granted to know these mysteries. And he emphasized this to their hearts, the privilege. Verse 16, he said, Blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desire to see what you see and, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Oh, have we lost the sense of privilege in the church. The sense of just, why do I have the full revelation of God? Why do I have the privilege this morning to open my Bible? Oh, brothers and sisters, it is not. Some of you are approaching your Christian life through a sense of duty. I would encourage you to approach the Christian life through the sense of privilege. You say, Pastor Dan, do I, do I have to read my Bible every day? No, you get to read your Bible every day. You say, Pastor Dan, do I have to go to, to Bible study every week? No, we get to go to Bible study every week. You say, do I, do I have to listen to biblical teaching? No, you get to listen to Bible teaching. It's a privilege, brothers and sisters. It's a privilege. Let us not take for granted the privilege that God has given to us to have, to live in the era in which the mysteries of Christ have been revealed and in which we can behold Christ's glory and with faith-filled eyes behold the glory of Christ as he is revealed to us in the New Testament scriptures. I love how Colossians chapter 2, verse 2 puts it. It says that I want you to grow in the knowledge of God's mystery. And he says the mystery is Christ. The mystery is Christ. It doesn't get any simpler than that. The mystery that is now revealed to us is the person and work of Christ. I have a friend who is a Bible translator in in Africa, he's ministering in Cameroon right now, and he spent his whole life preparing for the work of Bible translation. And he told me that when you do the work of Bible translation, you basically uh, spend 30, 40 years of your life translating the Bible, and then you die, because that's your life work. You go through the scriptures, you translate it, and you go to heaven. And he was telling me of the need for Bible translation, that there are so many languages and dialects who do not have the scriptures in their language. I remember he came to a Bible study of mine that I was leading, and he, he, he put all the, the Bibles in the English language that we have, you know, the NASB, the ESV, the NIV, the, all, all of the different Bibles, the, the Living Bible. He just kind of stacked them all up in a gigantic stack. And then he took a little pamphlet um, and put them next to the stack. And he said that this pamphlet rep- is the one book of the Bible it's the one book of the Bible that's translated into this African dialect to the people that I'm going to. And he said to me, Dan, uh, this entire people group, they have 
one book. That's all they have. This is all the revelation of God that they're able to read and understand in their language. And he said to me, Dan, let me ask you a question. If, if, um, if this is all you had, how much would you understand about God? If all you had of the Bible was this one pamphlet, how much of Jesus would you understand? And I had to say to him, you know, I wouldn't understand much. I would have a very limited understanding of who Jesus is. And he said, that's why I'm going. That's why I'm going to spend my life translating the word of God into this dialect. And his heart really wasn't to do a guilt trip. You know, I think he was trying to be real careful not to motivate with guilt. But what, he was, what I came away with from that time was just the sense of privilege. I mean, what a privilege that we have the whole Bible, that we have not only the Old Testament revelation of God's wisdom, we have the New Testament revelation of God's wisdom. We not only have the Old Testament revelation of Christ, we have the New Testament revelation of Christ. We have the Word of God in our language, and we can read it and study it for ourselves. Oh, brothers and sisters, have you lost the sense of privilege? Have you lost the sense of privilege? Paul would say, Jesus has said, blessed are your eyes, for they hear. Blessed are, their, are your ears, for many, many have sought to understand what you understand and were not able to understand it. I pray for our hearts. I really do. And I pray that for hearts that we would have a renewed sense of an overwhelming privilege of reading and studying the Word of God. I just, I just pray that God would do that in your hearts. I pray that God would do that in my heart. I pray we would never take for granted the gift that God has given to us, the gift of God's wisdom, which is more precious than silver or gold. Let me, look, let me emphasize the second point to you this morning. The first point was that God has given to us a tremendous privilege. And the second point, this is really thrilling to the heart is that God has given to us a tremendous perspective. God has given to us a tremendous perspective. And if you look at verse 9, he unfolds this perspective. He says, follow with me here, making known to us the mystery of his will, and then follow here, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. You know, as we come to verse 10, it's been observed, we are coming to really the climax of this doxology. This is the pinnacle. This is the high point. This is the crescendo. This is where everything in Paul's doxology is heading toward and moving toward, and he calls it, the, in the NASB, the summing up of all things in Christ the uniting of all things in Christ. And let me just back up here for a moment. What Paul is emphasizing to our hearts in this text and throughout this doxology is the necessity of perspective. It is the necessity of perspective. Brothers and sisters, what you need this morning is perspective. You need perspective. I need perspective. All of us have the temptation to drown in the immediate to see only what is in front of us, to see only what is right before us. 
you have situations in your life that you are dealing with right now, and your temptation is to lose yourself in that circumstance. And I have temptation as well to lose myself in the immediate. And Paul, in this text, if anyone, would have had the temptation to lose himself in his immediate circumstances because they were so discouraging. They were so discouraging. To be in prison and not know when you're going to be let out. If all Paul saw was what was right before him, life stunk. I mean, life, might as well pack it up. Because this is so discouraging. It's so discouraging. I mean, not only was he in prison, but he actually had people in the church, Christians, even fellow preachers, who were criticizing him for being in prison. It wasn't like these guys were coming around him and saying, hey, let's rally around Paul, let's support Paul, he's in prison. No, he had people in the church who were saying, Paul's a washout, he's a flame out, look at him. God put him in prison to discipline him. He had insults and criticisms, even from people in his own church. How discouraging. And if Paul gave in to the temptation to lose himself in the immediate, his life would have stunk. And his heart would have followed. And what Paul is saying, no. What I need is perspective. And what you need is perspective. I remember going up to um, Half Dome at Yosemite. This is, I think, about 10 years ago. I don't do that anymore. But back when I was young and did stuff like that, I, I climbed all the way up to the Half Dome at Yosemite and and took a look around and, and just saw the breathtaking perspective of God's creation. I stood on that peak and I thought to myself, what are my problems in comparison with this? What are my difficulties in comparison to all this? The beauty of God's creation. Well, that's just the beauty of God's creation. What God is showing, what Paul is showing us here is the beauty of God's salvation. And he's saying, have perspective. Have perspective. You need perspective, brothers and sisters. I need perspective. And I will say to you this morning, brothers and sisters, you need perspective this morning. You need perspective this morning. You and I, even this week, will be tempted to lose ourselves in the the situation of the immediate. And Paul is pulling us out of that. And he's saying, see the bigger picture. See the bigger picture. What is the bigger picture, Paul? What is the bigger picture? The bigger picture is, verse 9, God has a purpose. He has a purpose. That's referring to the the plan that God has made in eternity past, that he is now unfolding in human history. God has a purpose. Don't ever forget that. Don't ever lose sight of that. God has a purpose and what you're going through right now. God has a purpose in what I'm going through right now. God has a plan. God is in control. God is sovereign. God is working out his plan. God is working out his purpose. God has a reason. God has a goal. God has an end in mind. God always has a purpose. God has a purpose. You lose perspective of that, your life will stink. You hold tight to that, and like Paul, you will be in the dungeon of your circumstances, and your heart will be filled with praise to God. God has a purpose. And then he says in verse 10 that God has a plan. God has a 
plan. I like how the NASB translates this. God has a view towards an administration, is the literal translation. An ordering or an arrangement of affairs. God is moving all of human history toward the future end in which he will order all of creation in a certain arrangement. You might think of cleaning your room. And what do you do when you clean your room? You put all of your things in a certain arrangement, right? You take your socks and put them in the sock drawer. You put your clothes and put them in the drawer. You you clean up and you put everything in its proper place. And what Paul is saying here is that God is even now working out his plan to put all of creation in its proper place. Everything will one day reach a point when it will all be perfectly ordered. And what is the arrangement or order that God will work out in his timing? He says, verse 10, he has a plan for the fullness of time to, catch this, unite all things in Christ. To unite all things in Christ. You know, I'm a, my father is from North Korea. And my, uh, my mother is from South Korea. Uh, my father came to the South during the Korean War, and his family, uh, him and six daughters, and his mother and father fled to the South during the Korean War. And so my grandmother actually um, left her family behind during that time. And it was during the Sunshine Policy. Somebody, some of you remember that. When my grandmother actually got to go back to North Korea for the first time and meet her sister who she had not met since she was six years old. And there they were uh, in their 70s, and they were reunited for the first time. And even as a Korean American, I, wasn't, I was not born in Korea. I was born here. But even as a Korean American, I understand the longing of hearts of Koreans for unification, that everything is divided into certain governments, but that one day that barrier would be broken down and that the two countries would become one and, and be under one rule and be under one reign and that there would be unity and that there would be an ordering, an administration one day that would encompass all the disparate uh, powers and just bring all things underneath one authority. And you know what Paul is saying in verse 10? Is that as much as, Dan, you might long for the unification of Korea... I have a much greater unification in view. The unification that I have in view is the unification of all creation. Of all creation. Just as Korea is divided into north and south, all of creation is divided and underneath different authorities. There There are powers and authorities that are ruling in this world and God is saying here that one day there's going to be unification. One day, all those barriers are going to be broken down and all of creation will be brought underneath the one single authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God is moving all of human history towards that great event. He's moving all of our circumstances toward that great event. All of our lives are part of the unfolding of God's purpose to unite all things in Christ and to bring all things under his authority. And one day, one day, brothers and sisters, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father and all things will be brought into subjection with him. And there will be one day unification. There will be the summing up of all things in Christ and all things will be United in him, Paul says, verse 10, things in heaven and things in earth. What's the point here? The point is 
that God has revealed to us the mystery of Christ. The mystery is about Christ. The mystery centers on Christ. And the mystery that has now been revealed to us is not only concerning the first coming of Christ, it also concerns the second coming of Christ. It is the second coming of Christ that is part of this mystery that has now been given to the New Testament saints. One day Jesus return in power and glory. Satan will be bound for a thousand years. Believers will be raised and they will reign with Christ. The Old Testament covenants will be fulfilled. The blessing of Abraham will spread to the nation. Isaiah 11 verse 9 says, The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And after the great millennial kingdom, the thousand year of Christ, Satan will be released from his prison. He will come and deceive the nations. And Christ will defeat that great rebellion. He will throw Satan into the lake of fire and unbelievers will be raised and will be judged in the final judgment. And then in Revelation chapter 21, verse 6, Jesus says, it is done. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. All things are unified under Christ's authority. You wonder why Paul was able to give God praise in the midst of a prison, in the midst of a jail cell, you wonder why Paul could look at all the discouraging circumstances and still say that I'm, I'm not defeated. I'm filled with blessing and adoration to Christ. You wonder why God Paul through all these various trials. It was perspective. It was perspective. It was Paul saying, look, I read the end of the book and we win. It's Paul saying that the victory has been preordained and predetermined by Christ. It is Paul saying that, yeah, things don't look good right now, but that is because we're only seeing what's in front of us. If we look what's beyond us, things look glorious. Things look beautiful. John Stott wrote this. This is so precious. I just think this is worth its weight in gold. He said that though Paul's wrist was chained and his body was confined, his heart and his mind inhabited in her eternity. Paul peered back before the foundation of the world and he peered on ahead to the fullness of time. And Stoss says, as for us, as for us, how blinkered is our vision in comparison with his? How small is our mind? How narrow are our horizons? How easily and naturally we slip into a preoccupation with our own petty little affairs. But we need to see time in light of eternity. We need to see our present privileges and obligations in light of this perspective and then i love this if we shared the apostle's perspective we would share his praise brothers and sisters if we shared paul's perspective we would share his praise and we would say blessed be the god and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, brothers and sisters, I've taught uh, junior high school. Some of you know I taught uh, algebra and geometry to seventh and eighth graders. It's, it's kind of strange now because my son now is taking the same classes, so I have a temptation to correct all of his homework. But I know what it's like to be in a, in a junior high classroom, and there are times that I had to say to my junior high students, because they don't take anything seriously, and um, I had, I've had to stand up and say to them, I'm being very serious now. I'm not joking. Mr. Na means business. You need to listen up. The homework is due tomorrow. Not the day after, not next week, tomorrow. I am dead serious. And I had to repeat myself because, again, 
they don't take anything seriously. And you, you are not junior high students. You are adults, and I want to treat you as adults. And yet, I want to make this point, and I want to let you know that I am dead serious. Don't blow this off. This is crucial. And I want to be dead serious about this point. You and I, brothers and sisters, do not need to be mastered by our circumstances. You and I do not need to be mastered by our circumstances. Please do not blow that off. Please take that to heart. It is crucial for your heart. You do not need to live under your circumstances. But by God's grace, because of the revelation God has given to us, because of the gift of wisdom which centers on the person and work of Jesus Christ, you and I, even in the midst of circumstances, can have a heart like Paul's, a heart of praise, a heart of confidence, a heart of joy, a heart spilling over with adoration to Christ. And with faith-filled eyes, we can behold the glory of Christ. You know, when you're in prison, and when everything seems against you, when nothing seems to be going your way, and when it seems that all the affairs of life have marshaled against you, that is a perfect time to with faith-filled eyes behold the glory of Christ. Let us do that this morning as we respond to this text. And let us do that this morning as we come to the Lord's table. Let us with faith-filled eyes behold Christ, the wisdom of God. Christ, the fullest expression of God's wisdom. Christ and him crucified, which is foolishness to the world, but to those who are saved. The power of God and the wisdom of God. Let us take of the bread and let us take of the cup. Let us with faithful eyes behold the glory of Christ at the cross, his love for us, his sacrifice on our behalf. Let us humble ourselves before what Christ has done for us. And let us say, with Paul in verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me as we come to the Lord's table, as we invite the praise team to come up and lead us in songs of praise. Let us prepare our hearts for the Lord's table. Our Father, what a privilege. What a privilege you have given to us we would be given the gift of your wisdom. What a privilege we have, Lord, to open the scriptures and to with faith-filled eyes behold the glory of Christ. There's no greater privilege, Lord, no greater honor, no greater gift than this, that we would know Christ. Oh, Lord, As we come to the Lord's table, fill us with this sense of awe and wonder.
Remove the jadedness, the familiarity, the sense of, well, we've done this before and we'll do it again, so why take it seriously? No, Lord, remove that from our hearts. May this be a time for each believer's heart to stand in awe, Lord, stand in wonder, Lord, at the cross, that Christ would die for our sins. They would pay for our sins at the cross. Lord, may we never lose that sense of wonder in the midst of all our circumstances, all our difficulties. Oh, Lord, and we see that even in the midst of the cloud, even in the midst of the fog, Lord, that is the perfect time for us to see Christ. This is the perfect time for us to see Christ right here, right now, as we take the Lord's table. Lord, would you help us to remember Christ, not take for granted the ordinance of communion, to be overwhelmed with just this sense of privilege. And as we take the Lord's table, we proclaim his death until he comes. We long for that future day when all things will be united in Christ. We thank you for this time. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.